Welcome back to Resball. We've got our draft pod with my guy Jam. Today we are going to talk about the players who made the best decisions coming back to play for another year to get it in that 2024 NBA draft class. We'll also talk about Jam's recent trip to scout the University of Virginia versus Syracuse game. And maybe something else along the way that Ryan done. everybody it's the draft pod with jam before we get started jam let everyone know where they can find you online and where they can find your work hey what's up everybody um you can find my work online at draft digest and you can find me on twitter at jam on the boards so jam did go on a recent scouting trip back to virginia and he saw them play syracuse a couple of players i'm interested in but we're going to start off just with jam's observations from the University of Virginia versus Syracuse game. So, Jam, what was it like there? And it's always great to get back to Charlottesville, home away from home, uh, for me, for sure, and and getting down there. Um, and obviously wanted to see Judah Mintz and Ryan Dunn. Those were the two standouts getting down there and potential first-round picks. Ryan Dunn looks like one, um, a, a really solidified first-round pick. Judah Mintz probably in that late first, somewhere in that second round. Um, but starting with Judah Mintz, that was a tough game for him, honestly. Um, Judah went two for eight in that game, uh, just five points. And it's, it was a tough matchup for him at the end of the day. You're dealing with two elite defenders in a college game and Ryan Dunn and Reese Beekman, who both spent the majority of the time on him. And that's two different looks when you get a guy like Reese Beekman, uh, 6'3", um, with a plus wingspan and what he does at the point of attack and then on the ball as well. And then, you know, getting a different look with someone bigger like Ryan Dunn, like we've talked about him before and it's, you know, common knowledge at this point, just the monster that Ryan Dunn is defensively with his 6'8", with his size, his strength, his length, um, and his activity level. So it was just a, a tough goal of it for Judah, and he was visibly frustrated throughout the game. Um, and this was off the heels of a 33-point game, a career high that he had against LSU. And, you know, they he was coming in hot into that game, and UVA, specifically with Ryan Dunn and Reese Beekman, were able to shut him down. And subsequently, he's been able to follow that up good for Judah Mintz with a 28-point game against Cornell and then 25-point game against Georgetown. So he did, you know, has bounced back. But in that UVA game, when you face two tough defenders like that, you know, it's – I wouldn't say it's a cause for concern quite yet, but when you get to the NBA level and you're consistently dealing with those tenacious uh, defenders that can be put on him, it could be potentially a, a cause for concern. Do you think that's something that teams should, NBA teams should be worried about moving forward when he's 
facing those type of defenders or is that just kind of a blip in the radar for you? Oh, for me, it's a blip in the radar. I think due to men's, any guard that's going to be under 6'4", I think there's going to be guys that love him or hate him already. And they just kept that. They use those kinds of games to see, like, see, they're going against Tony Bennett or see, they're going up against, you know, NBA guys like Ryan Dunn and like Reese Beekman and other people that like them. They're just going to say, yeah, like, you know, whatever the defense is key on him. He had a bad game. Look at how he responded coming back from it. Look at how he was before that. So I, I think it's one of those things that <laughs> it's small guards, like, Going forward, people are really going to be love them or hate them. And anything that you do bad, people that hate them are going to use it against them. And anybody that love them is going to, you know, push it against it. I think somewhere in the middle, though, is like why Judamence is probably like is like 25 to like 45 range because you see him here of like he can still get buckets. He still is an attacker no matter what. Like he was still in attack mode in that game. It's just, you know, he had a bad game there. He's getting better at shooting the three. And the big thing for me was um, their, their new, is it Chris Autry is their new coach? I always forget their new coach since um, Bayheim has left. Yeah, Adrian Autry, sorry. Adrian Autry, their new coach implemented man-to-man defense, which has not been a thing on Syracuse campus in like, what is it, 40, 40 years or whatever. And to see Judah Mintz play man-to-man defense, to me, I'm like, you're just a hater now if you don't see how well Judah Mintz has responded in man-to-man defense and you still like don't want to put that as a gigantic positive in his you know scouting report, then yeah, you're just a hater. So I think that's like something of, of somewhere in the middle. It's like, well, look at the defense. He's still contributing on the other end. And it's not this thing of being, I don't know, he's in the Syracuse um, zone there. So, yeah, bad game. But I think there's still a lot to like with Judamins. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think it's just a blip in the radar. And I'm glad you brought him up defensively as well. And that switch to man-to-man, I, I think that there is some potential there with him defensively, not a shutdown type of guy, but I don't think he's just going to be someone that teams can consistently pick on uh, just with his competitive nature and his athleticism and, and, and good length as well, too. And I know a guy that you like, Chris Bell, that we talked about before, pretty quiet game for him. He's still more of a long-term prospect, um, but just with his size, uh, you know, positional size in the wing and a very capable shooter, I think that'll just be his role and something that he can hang his hat on. I want to see him continuously get better. It'll probably be more of next year when Judah's gone, and I'm assuming J.J. Starling will be back. Um, we'll get to him in a little bit, but that'll be time. We play more of his time to shine next year. What What's kind of your thoughts on Chris Bell just in general, not just really in this game, but just in general? Is that kind of the pill for him for you as well, just the size and shooting? Yeah, absolutely. He's listed at six foot seven, one eighty. I don't know. He seem one eighty seems like he's either skinny, like buff, or they're really underselling his size. He doesn't look one eighty. He definitely looks six seven. But I mean, he's a legit shooter. He's taken like seven point six three point attempts per game. His three point attempt rate for Chris Bell is sixty point eight percent right now. So he's just firing away. I mean, he has had a 14-3 game against Colgate. He took 14 threes against Colgate. Chris Bell took 10 threes against Gonzaga. And then Chris Bell also took 10 threes against LSU and then 10 threes 
against Cornell. And in those games, he only had one game where he was bad, and that was the Gonzaga game where he was one of 10 there. In the Colgate game, Chris Bell was 6 of 14 from three. In the LSU game, he was 6 of 10 from three. And then in the Cornell game, Chris Bell was 5 of 10 from three. That size and that ability to shoot like that, it just doesn't come around very often. And the fact that he's able to generate like so much offense, he's Syracuse second leading scorer based off of just being able to chuck threes like that. 13.1 points per game right now. I mean, he's stepped up in a major way. But the weird thing, like, I really would push for him this year as a draft prospect and like anywhere in the second round. The weird thing for him, he's only taken five free throw attempts. That tells you he doesn't do much other than shooting. The dribbling might not be, might be non-existent. I mean, you know, I've sold Houston Millette before. Houston Millette dribbles. Houston Millette can, you know, handle the ball. He can attack closeouts and stuff. I'm not sure where Chris Bell is at. And then Chris Bell's 40% from the free throw line, but I mean, it's two of five free throw attempts. And then he has seven blocks, so... That is the thing that I would kind of push back on because you think that guy that's not getting the free throw line, you're like, ah, eh, maybe he's not so physical. Maybe he just doesn't want to mix it up. And you're like, no, he has seven blocks and that's second on the team at Syracuse right now. So it's not that he doesn't want to get in there and mix it up. I think it's just more uh, part of the role that he's in where they just keep him away from the basket. And when you play like somebody like Judah Mintz, and they brought in J.J. Starling, both guys need the ball. They like to attack off the dribble. Those are the main things that they have. You need somebody like Chris Bell who could be a one-man spacing unit. But the last thing, too, for me is like the 2.2 rebounds per game. Again, I don't know that I can really like hand wave that of like, yeah, he's just playing away from the basket so much. I mean, it's part of that. But, man, 2.2 rebounds, that's less than just about anybody uh, on this squad. I mean, it's less than Judah Mintz, it's less than J.J. Starling, less than Malik Brown, it's less than Justin Taylor, it's less than Kudir Copeland, and it's less than uh, Nahima Cloud. It's even less than Benny Williams, who's only played six games, and it's like 13.2 minutes per game. So the rebounding things are be odd. But if you want to just like shooting wing, yeah, and we'll see how the, the year plays out, but I really like Chris Bell as a shooter. Yeah, Chris Bell, like you said, the shooting certainly is the most translatable NBA skill. And then hopefully the rest of the game next year, when the role probably does open up a little bit more for him to do uh, some more things and expand his game. So I really am looking forward to see how he finishes the year, of course, and then um, builds that into next year. And then you brought up J.J. Starlin as well. He was someone that I was looking forward to seeing as well. Liked him a lot last year at Notre Dame, getting adjusted with Syracuse. For the most part, it was a quiet game into the second half. Um, he ended up finishing. I, mean, I got the uh, first half box score from that game that they handed out. So in that first half, it was just three points for J.J. Starling. Um, and then he ended up finishing with 16 points, knocking down a couple of threes, a uh, couple slashes, uh, but it was mostly doing kind of garbage time for the most part as the game got out of hand um, in, in that second half. Um, so for him, I really want to see if he can continue to find some consistency 
be able to provide that consistent scoring punch off uh, next to Judah Mintz and take some of that pressure off of him as well. Um, did you have, did you like Jacob Starling at Notre Dame? Have you liked what you've seen from him so far? I thought he was intriguing, but Syracuse has played 10 games. JJ Starling has made six three point shots and five of those have come in the last three games through the first seven games. He made one three point attempt. The shooting is just not there. I, I can't get behind six, four, 200 guard. Passing seems to be okay. from three. Yeah, the the passing is okay. Like it's three point two assists. I just feel like there's stuff there, but the whole package just does not come together. It's not a good shooter. He's an okay passer. He likes to attack, but he's not really like finishing at a high clip. It's not generating a ton of free throws. I think his free throw attempt rate is something like twenty one point five. I just don't know what like the go to skill set is. And all of that, like, oh, he's an okay passer. He can't shoot. Like, that does not scream NBA player to me. So I feel like JJ is going to have to take a while. And with Judamins, the way Judamins plays, you need to put the ball in his hands and create. Like you just said, Chris Bell, where maybe next year's the opportunity. I think for JJ in particular, he's going to have to wait until he gets more of an opportunity to, you know, pound the rock and have the ball in his hands a little bit more and not play along somebody like Judamins who's best skill is creating for others and creating for himself. Yeah, and I completely agree. Like, for a lot of you guys of Syracuse that we're going to talk about, it's more of like a next year thing where the role probably does expand. And not to get too much sidetracked with the tangent, but I do wonder what it will look like for guys like J.J. Starling and Malik Brown I'll talk about um, in a bit. If they have more facilitating point guard, Judas certainly um, has is, is a more than capable playmaker. But he's not that facilitating type of guard. That's just not the strength of his game. There's no knocking, it's just not the strength of his game. Um, so if you had someone that can facilitate and really orchestrate the offense and create some easier shots, I really wonder what that would look like and if that's something Syracuse will be looking to get in uh, next year. And I think that will also play well for someone like Malik Brown, um, who I really love his energy, play with a lot of energy there. Um, and he's a play finisher. That's the strength of his. It really works well with Judah Mintz and his ability to be able to pressure the rim and drop-offs. And also he works the offensive glass. So he's someone that I do like another long-term guy. And then also with Syracuse, the last guy I just want to mention there, uh, J.J. Taylor. Didn't have the best game. I think he's still a long-term type of prospect as well. Just three points in there. But the selling the selling point for him is the shooting as well. Um, and I'm hopeful that he's someone that will find his footing this year and then be able to kind of springboard that into next year. Have you liked J.J. Taylor? Have you um, either him or Malik Brown, what you've seen from either of them? Not really. The one that I'm questioning is Malik Brown. Like, can he shoot? Because when I see him at the free throw, no. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was my thought. But I I would like him a lot better if he could shoot. Uh, the play finishing is good. The rebounding seems to be pretty good. And then, he, I mean, he's a really good steals guy, 2.2 steals per game. The switch to man-to-man defense here for Syracuse, I think, has benefited him the most, probably, just to display his quick hands, his lateral ability, and get that out there and defend a couple different positions. But he's like 6'8", 218, right? Maybe he's a small ball center. 
But I think even for like an undrafted free agent look, I think he's got to be able to shoot it. So that's kind of disappointing to hear you <laughs> shoot it down right away. Um, yeah, like I said, that that guy, there just ain't too many. Um, what was his name? Quincy Evans. Uh, who am I thinking about? The Reggie Evans, the guy that just mm-hmm. rebounded like crazy who played for the Nets. You remember what I'm talking about? Yep, yep, I do. Yes, it's going to be a energy, big, high motor type of role for him. Um, and that, I think that's what ultimately is going to be the main selling point for him. And then I let's get to the UVA side. And we'll start with Reese Beekman. I thought it was just a solid game for Reese. Uh, nothing really too spectacular uh, for him. He ended up with 13 points. Um, but what I was most impressed about was the eight assists, the no turnovers, really orchestrated the game. And I, the defensive end, that's always going to stand out for him. And in talking about Judah Mintz and opening with that, just the defensive job that he did on him to help frustrate him. I just really, really like Reese Beekman. I'm hoping that the shooting does become more consistent. If he was someone that can really shoot the ball or let's say if he was 34%, 35% uh, type of shooter, just a more reliable shooter, I think he would be a locked first rounder. We talk about someone that can defend at the point of attack. is just an absolute menace, um, solid slasher, and his ability to be able to impact the game with his defense is, is exceptional, especially when you look around the league and it's just so many terrific point guards, someone that could potentially slow down or at least keep up and make things difficult with a lot of the point guards in the NBA right now. Are you all in on Reese Beekman? Do you see more as shooting the concern for you? I was all in on Reese Beekman last year, but man, the shooting has just really taken a step back this year. He's only taken 25 three-point attempts and 28% from three right now. 79.2% from the free throw line. And then for his career, Reese Beekman is 31.9% from three across his four years at Virginia. And he's only taken two three-point attempts per game in those four years. Uh, to me, it's more the volume of threes or the lack of volume of threes. That's the concern for Reese Beekman. I know Virginia is always a conservative, take your time, find the perfect open shot offense. But even in that, like he just does not take as many threes as he should. And I feel like that is going to just scare away a lot of teams to where they're just like, I don't really know if it's more scheme dependent or if there's really been a Virginia guy like this that just never takes over three uh, three point attempts per game. Because that, that's going to be the selling point. He's also, Reese Beekman's not exactly like lighting it up. He's never had a full season where he's averaged 10 points per game or more. Right now, he's currently averaging 11.6 points per game. I really love the defense, though. And I don't think there's a better like point guard out there in college basketball in terms of taking care of the ball. 52 assists to 11 turnovers right now. I mean, you're kidding me, five to one assist to turnover ratio. That's one of the areas where he just seems to get better every year. Like Monte Morris is probably the name that springs to mind when I think of somebody that is like that type of a point guard where you're just like, you give him the ball. He knows how to run things. He is not going to bite you in the butt and do things and make stupid passes and get everybody lined up in the right spot. 
find everybody an easy shot. It's just, I feel like we've been asking the same question from Reese Beekman for three years now. It's like, what's the offense? Yeah, that's certainly the swing skill at the end of the day of what he's going to do offensively, um, specifically with the shooting uh, from distance. Some names, I don't think necessarily, I wouldn't say they're comps, but I'm thinking more about maybe a comp role as opposed to as far as a comp for the player. But having him in that Jose Alvarado type of role, you know, the Pat Beverly type of role where he's just there to be an absolute menace and disruptor, and also what he can do as a facilitator. I think he's a better facilitator than them both. I think that's just very, very interesting. Obviously, he has uh, more size than them as well. So I think that is definitely someone and uh, that someone that teams will certainly consider it in the second round, whether it's mid or late. Maybe it ends up being undrafted free agent, a priority um, free agent for a lot of teams. But I think, especially if you feel like the shooting isn't going to be too much of a hindrance. Let's say if you have enough shooting on the team already, or if it's just something you aren't really just too worried about and for if you just really need someone that can be a defender at the point of attack, just hound point guards, defend at the two. Would love you to defend some threes, maybe some smaller threes that remains to be seen, but mostly at, at the one and two. Yeah, I also feel like a team like the Pelicans with their shooting coach, Fred Vinson, or OKC US Chip England now, or you know Spurs, they probably Legend like, Chip England. <laughs> yeah, but they're probably just like, hey, let's just take him. So that that kind of sways me back to that side of, of like, I, yeah, I feel like they would just be like, oh, let's roll the dice on him here and do that. I mean, if I had him in a private workout, I literally would not talk to him and be like, shoot threes. I, like, shoot threes until I tell you to stop, just to get an idea of like that form and um, to see. Or if you saw him in, you know, those um, runs where it's one-on-one against you know, other draft prospects or in the um, the combine workouts. I don't know if he'll go to Portsmouth. He might be like too high profile for that. But if I were his agent, if I were his representation, I'd be like, try and shoot threes, man. Because if you start getting hot from there, first round is not out of the question. Because everything else will be laid out. The defense even his finishing in the paint and his finishing at the rim right now is greatly improved. I'm looking at a shot chart on CBB analytics and Reese Beekman right now is 19 of 29 at the rim. That's 65.5%. It's pretty good. And then in the paint, Reese Beekman is 10 of 23, which is 43.5%. Again, pretty good. I know one of the knocks on him before is like he goes to his floater a little bit too much. That would just be one thing too. I would, I would really not want him to be too reliant on that. Like you said, hopefully you see the shooting improvements in the percentages, but I really would like him to fire away, but we know that's not going to happen with the way uh, the Virginia offense operates. But I, I, I really do. This, this does hurt me because I love defense. I love Virginia guys, but I just keep it a real, like, I don't know what the offense is yet for Reese Beekman. <laughs> and before we get to, the highest rated player, I'm sure, for most people, and certainly for me, and I believe you as well, uh, Ryan Dunn. I want to talk about Isaac McNeely, who had a terrific game, 22 points, 6 of 8 from 3. And um, that first half, he had 16 points. One of the best games I've seen him play, the confidence from him shooting the ball with his catch and shoot. 
the pull up. He's a stat back three as well. He is a legitimate NBA shooter. Hits some with deep range. And I just absolutely love what he can do as a shooter. I obviously that is his calling card. We'll see what happens with the rest of his game. But it was great to see him be able to break out in that way. Um, and I don't know if he's going to be able to follow the steps of shooters like uh, Kyle Guy, Joe Harris. Uh, obviously, not the defender he is, but as far as just a shooter, I think he could be in line as UVA, one of UVA's next best uh, great shooters. Do you like him at all for the next level? I think he's what, 6'3", 6'4". Um, obviously, if he has some more size, that would be terrific. Or it's a little bit more juice to his game. But right now, um, he's more of a specialist. Yeah, 6'4", 179 is what basketball reference or sports reference has him listed at. My goodness, what is going on with Isaac McNeely inside the two-point arc, though? 35.7%. Again, looking at a shot chart here, like it's mostly blue inside the arc, but it's not a lot of attempts either. It's like two from the left baseline, seven from the left elbow, three from the right elbow, four from the right baseline. He's only taken 10 attempts in the paint. And he's one of two at the rim. But I start there because it's like everything else is red. Like no, no lie, no joke. Red from left corner, one of two. Red from the left wing, 13 of 19. My goodness. Five of 12 from the top of the key. And then red from right wing, six of seven. And then 0 for 1 from the right corner. So I guess not all red. I mean, you just said it. Legit shooter. I don't know that he does much else, but I mean, at the 6'4", 179, if he can guard shooting guards, can guard point guards, and is legitimate red threat from everywhere around the three-point arc, yeah, again, late first-round pick anywhere in the second round. If teams are dumb enough to let him fall to the undrafted free agent pool, I'm sure Pat Riley is snickering somewhere. (laughs) You know, he certainly could be one of those Miami Heat type of targets when his time does come uh, for the draft in the next few years. And I guess we can um, move on to, to Ryan Dunn now. Um, Dunn, for the most part, it essentially was a quiet game for him. Four points, four rebounds, uh, two assists. And of course, the defensive playmaker that he is, the stock monster that he is, four total stocks. Two steals, two blocks, and including um, a transition block off the glass um, and help. So I, that's he seemingly to make plays like that all the time. It's one of the uh, the big things that I love about him. And also tweeted, uh, uh, or uh, can you still say tweet? Is it is he X? But I still, I guess, still tweeted out. But I don't think you can say X because that sounds like your day. Still sounds strange. Yeah. <laughs> He had one play um, where he cut baseline and bring the ball up the floor. He was in motion the whole possession, cut baseline, got on the offensive glass, multiple efforts on there, and then just dove on the floor to get the loose ball, found Reese Beekman, who found McNeely for a deep three. It's like those type of hustle plays, the dirty work, the little things, if you will, which essentially are big things. They're winning plays. We combine that stuff with his activity level, the monster defensive tools and production. That's, that's just always the sell for me, for him, and I'm sure for most people. Offensively, it's just where 
it gets a little funky. Syracuse started this game by defending, um, by having Naheem McLeod. Um, is it Naheem? I, I know I, when we talk about four. Yes, yeah, Naheem. It's Naheem McLeod. Naheem McLeod, seven foot four on Ryan Dunn. And he was just playing the paint. Completely not worried about him at all. Um, I was wondering if that's a look that Syracuse was going to go back to in the game, and they really didn't do that. And I'm also going to be in a lookout. Is this going to be a strategic approach that teams will continuously apply on UVA and Ryan Dunn if you're going to put a big man on him or maybe, you know, your weakest defender, wherever the case is, and just lay, lay off of him and force him to shoot the ball or attack the space the way UVA's offense is structured. That really wasn't what they're looking for to get in the ball and attack the space and make a play. But it was very interesting. I was honestly shocked to see them open up that way and have them matched up and hit them just play absolutely no attention to Ryan Dunn on the perimeter. So, of course, as we know, that is a huge swing skill for him. He's already projected to be a lottery pick. And I think if he can find that shooting stroke, become a reliable or capable three-point shooter, the top 10 lock is certainly not out of the question. Um, what are your general thoughts on, on Ryan Dunn? Uh, did, did it shock you to hear or to see that that's the way they started defending him? No, it did not shock me because, honestly, the more that I watch Ryan Dunn is the more the question I'm going to ask, you know, which leads into our next segment. Can Ryan Dunn play center in the NBA? I don't know why so many people are like dead set on him being like the next best perimeter. Oh, he's such a great wing defender. I mean, on the one hand, I get it. Basketball reference or sports reference has him listed at six foot eight, 208. Virginia has him listed at six, eight, 216. The more I look at him, the more I think of somebody like a Brandon Clark, who's around that same size, six foot eight, like 200, 210. Somewhere in there. I honestly think Brandon Clark is a lot skinnier than Ryan Dunn. Ryan Dunn looks more built. I do think he's closer to like 216, 218. I've seen him listed at 218 other places. And Rafael Barlow and James Barlow have started this conversation of like, can Ryan Dunn play the center? And Rafael says, you know, his skill set seems to be something that screams play him at the five. I agree with this. If you look at Ryan Dunn's shot chart, you know how many shots Ryan Dunn has taken in the mid-range? Is it less than 10? Zero. He's not oh, taken yikes. a single shot in the mid-range. Uh, he's taken five from left corner, three of five from uh, left wing, zero of four from top of the key, O of three from right wing, and then O of two from the right corner. But in the paint, 58.3%, and then at the rim, 85.7%. It's only on 21 shots. But again, all of this screams to me, Put him in the paint. He's also the tallest player for UVA right now, so he's essentially playing center anyway. 23 steals, 23 blocks. 2.6 steals per game, 2.6 blocks per game. The, the rebounding as well, Ryan Dunn is averaging, I think it's something like 6.3 rebounds per game. Yeah, 6.3 rebounds per game. The total on that is 57, which does lead the University of Virginia. And then Ryan Dunn also has a free throw attempt rate of 59.6%. And he's shooting 71% 
at the free throw line. I'm like, all those skills, if you put him at center, scream like, whoa, this dude is a big mismatch. And if the thing is, oh, he can block shots really good, he can uh, generate a lot of steals, and then he's a good finisher at the rim. I don't know if he's necessarily a play finisher, which will be the question I'm going to pose here kind of at the end. And then he gets to the free throw line a lot, and he's a 70% above 70% free throw shooter. To me, that screams like, can he play center? Because all these things seem to indicate his best position should be center. I know six foot eight, a lot of people might kind of groan at that, but why not? Why would you force this guy who's 21%, 21.1% three point shooter? Like, the more you try and force that on him, I think you're just making him lose money and also pushing him away from what clearly is his best skill set and clearly where he does well on offense, which is in the paint and at the rim. Not only do I wonder, though, can he play center, but I I question, like, is this like the Brandon Clark where he's a really good first big off the bench or could Ryan Dunn legitimately be like a starter at the five in the NBA? You definitely brought up a lot (laughs) there uh, to tackle for sure. Some really good points. And seeing Ryan Dunn over the past few years um, live, I do, I do like the body for sure. I think he is, you know, closer to, you know, to the 218, whatever the listing is at UVA. And I think that he will be able to continuously add more mature muscle to his frame. You know, he has the broad shoulders. He already has some of the mature muscle right now. And I think that with him, he's more of a four and a small ball five. If you want him strictly to play the five, I think it's going to be a hard sell. You know, if you're a GM to go and tell the owner we're drafting him to play the five spot in the top 10, you know, in a lottery. I think the hope is that he does play the four. You put him next to a legitimate center and hopefully he can be a reliable shooter at some point or you just put enough shooting around him. But I, with him being able to defend one through four, I think that's just absolutely uh, terrific. And then once you be able to have him play the five in a small ball type of role, then you have him really switching one through five. And you brought up the play finishing as well. I think that is and can, can be a strength of his. He's a very good athlete, strong around the basket, still does have some work to do. But for the most part, especially in transition and dump offs and those type of things, that is what his game is going to be, cuts and being a play finisher that way. Um, but as far as him starting that center, I'm not a big fan of that. It certainly has for me. It certainly has to be someone that's going to play that in a small ball role against the second units. So two names to think about. One of them is wild because he's a completely different body type from him. And that's Robert Williams. But Rod Will is also like six foot eight, right? He's a smaller center. The other one I, I think about is Kavon Looney, but like a supercharged version of Kavon Looney. And like Kavon Looney is one of those NBA players I don't think the general fan base thinks about enough. And I've said it a lot on this podcast. Without Kavon Looney, I'm not sure those Warrior teams make it on a couple of those runs because he made some really good rebounds, a really good defensive plays that saved a possession or that saved a game. Again, things that don't so show up in the stat sheet. 
But again, there's a reason why he's been there for so long and why they refuse to let him go. And he's been a priority whenever they've looked to re-sign him, why he's played alongside Draymond and that stuff. It's like he just does so much valuable stuff in the playoffs time for a big man. He's not the biggest dude. He's another guy, too, that I remember his draft profile was as small forward. That was his primary position. But once the Warriors drafted him and realized that's stupid, this guy can't shoot. And he's fantastic with a bunch of big men stuff. Who cares if he's quote unquote small? That's just what they embraced. I feel like Ryan Dunn could be somewhere in between there. And Rob Will, again, undersized center. I mean, he's probably as wide as he is tall. That's one of the things and more explosive than than uh, uh, Ryan Dunn is. But like, especially the height, six foot eight, I don't think that's that big of a thing to overcome. And again, if I were representing him or if I had him in like pre-draft process, to me, that that's the sell to teams. It's like Von Looney. Think about somebody like Robert Williams. I, I don't want to bring up this name just because he's sacred to me. He's my favorite player ever. Like Ben Wallace. Nobody's ever going to be Ben Wallace again. But I mean, again, the steals, the blocks, the high level defense. I mean, if Ryan Dunn shot like 35% from three, he would probably be a shoe in for top three at this point, right? It's, it's not bonkers to say that, right? I completely agree. The shooting is that missing element. And it doesn't have to be an elite shooter, a very good shooter, or even a good shooter. Just reliable and or capable. You know, you have to be some sort of threat out there. And then when you're having centers just completely sag off you or whoever is going to be you know, the primary defender on him, you know, that's, that's certainly not a good look and obviously messes up the spacing. Well, with him, I mean, think about Robert Williams. I would love if he was the vertical spacer that Robert Williams is. I think that's a missing element for him. For him to be able to run pick and rolls and you have that lob threat, if that was more in his game, I, I would like him to be in that Robert Williams role. I, I could certainly see something like that. Um, where do you compare him for someone like, I'm thinking like a, a defense first guy for the most part. Um, of course, going to be some comparisons to DeAndre Hunter being a UDA guy. Like So he reminds me more of someone like that. Maybe some comparisons to Balak Kulabale, although obviously um, Kulabale was younger and also playing in a professional league and, and producing as well, too. And maybe ha- has a little bit more offensive juice. Um, but those are the type of the guys that I'm looking at uh, for him. Honestly, if I had to sell somebody right now on like a current player and be like, this is why you should take Ryan Dunn, it would be a SAR. Because he does a lot of different things that Asar does. He's not as explosive, but I think he's more advanced at his age defensively. And I feel like we're not doing Ryan Dunn justice enough of how good of a defender he is. Like if prospects were just graded on defensive alone, then Ryan Dunn is like the Victor Wembanyama of this draft. There's nobody else that comes close to just the level that he has. He's not playing with any player that's taller than him. His center... Blake Buchanan is like the sixth man who barely ever plays. He's playing with a couple guards and wings that they work well in the Virginia system, but it, McNeely, 6'4", 170, 
Jacob Grove, 6'7", 185, Leon Bond, 6'5", 200. Like, you don't understand how much Ryan Dunn has to do on defense. And still, again, 23 blocks, 23 steals, covers a whole bunch of ground. Reese Beacon, yes, is a good defender at the guard position. But again, Ryan Dunn's not playing with a center. He's not playing with another guard defender that's a top-level athlete. He's not playing with any top-level athletes on this team either. He has to be the primary perimeter defender on wings and on forwards. And oh, he also has to be the starting center, and he's doing a fantastic job of it. Yeah, that's what's really hard for me with Ryan Dunn right now, as we've been talking about. Is just what exactly is he does offensively, just outside of the um, the the shooting concern. What else can he do offensively? I wish he had the ball skills that Asar has mm-hmm. and the passing that he's shown. I think that would be a better sell for him and be able to elevate him firmly, potentially, you know, in that top five if he had a little bit more ball skills. So that's what well, I'm being, to see. being the piston guy here. Asar's <laughs> ball skills are not exactly there right now. Also, like, so that's all a long term thing. Yeah, Ryan Dunn's mm-hmm. ball skills aren't at the level of Asar's, but I think that's part of my point. It's like Asar turns it over a lot, like, he's still very raw there. But it's like, hey, imagine getting that guy, but he is more big man oriented and he is just as impactful on defense and you know what maybe you can grow into even more and you don't have to rely on the shooting which is a big thing with Asar right now that we're all going through is piston fans is like we don't really know what his position is because we want him at the yeah. wing or at, at one of the guard spots no 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 now Monty's trying to play him at power forward and stuff whereas <laughs> Brian Dunn you can be like nope he's power forward center let's roll him out there and, and get rolling on that and surround him with shooters I, I think that's the sell Definitely. And that's what every NBA team knows from day one, especially what you want to see from rookies. And one of their best ways to be on the floor is with their defense. And from day one, Ryan Dunn is going to be an impactful defender. And you can certainly see him potentially becoming an all NBA type of defender. Yeah, love Ryan Dunn. Hopefully the center thing can become more of a thing we shall see as the season wears on. But where we're going to end is the title of this podcast, guys, we think that made the right decision coming back to school. I'm going to start off with my honorable mention, which was kind of a cop out. I thought about doing this as like my entry, but then I realized, yeah, it is a cop out. And that's just the UConn guys, specifically Tristan Newton, Cam Spencer and Alex Caravan. Not that Alex Caravan like was a draft prospect last year, but I'm just a big Alex Caravan fan. And I think he goes underrated. You know, just a good shooter, a little bit of a shooting slump for a while there, but able to turn it around. Cam Spencer, all he does is shoot threes. He had a really good year with Rutgers last year. Came in now and is still shooting the ball fantastically for the Huskies. And then Tristan Newton, the big guard, 6'5", 200, can handle the rock and attack the rim. It just generates a ton of assists. I'm, I joked with Jam beforehand that whenever Donovan Klingon gets drafted, Tristan Newton should be like, I need half that paycheck because without me, I don't know that he would have gotten any offense. That's the kind of guy that Tristan Newton is. And again, Alex Caravan listed at six foot eight, two ten. To me, it profiles as somebody like the Marcus Morris, Royce O'Neal, Dorian Finney-Smith. 
type of dude where he's mainly just going to shoot threes, play tough defense. I implore anybody go back to last year and watch UConn against Alabama. Alex Carabin's defense on Brandon Miller is really good. Cam Spencer's 6'4", 205. You know, do you think, eh, whatever, he's small. 45.6% from three on 6.8 three-point attempts per game right now. Again, he's a legit shooter. For me, legit shooter means not only do they shoot a high percentage, but they shoot a high volume. And Cam Spencer might be at the top of that list. And then Tristan Newton, 6.1 assists per game right now to just 2.4 turnovers. And oh, by the way, leads the UConn Huskies with 17 points per game. So, Jam, what are your thoughts on the, the UConn guys? We'll start with Tristan Newton. I think he absolutely deserves to be in that top 60 conversation. He certainly has become a draftable player for sure. As a bigger guard, as six foot five, as being the primary handler for UConn. And I've just really been impressed with his ability to consistently fill the stat sheet. And we were talking before this, that game against Kansas where he scored 31 points. They were just so stagnant offensively, especially in that first half. And he just hit big three after big three and made play after play just to keep them close. Um, and I love stuff like that. Um, just, just how gutsy he was. So that really, really stood out for me. And I think he may be, at the end of the day, is going to be too big time for the portion invitation. It may not be a good idea for him uh, in this season to go there. Um, but obviously, I think he will be somebody who can go there and press there and just shut it down. But I don't think that will be something that he'll need to do come into the season. I want to see him consistently become a, a better shooter, but he, you know, is a career 84% shooter from the free throw line, uh, which is great. Um, low 30s, career three-point shooter as well, and I think that's certainly uh, passable for sure. I don't see him becoming a, a great three-point shooter, but that is certainly um, good enough, and the shot making overall uh, certainly takes it over the top. So I, I, I am in on Tristan Newton. I think he'd be a good second-round target for a lot of teams. And I think with Caravan and Spencer, um, not much more to, to, to add. I think you hit the, the nail on the head while with that. Both are very good shooters. Obviously, Caravan does it while with more size. Better defender than he gives credit for, as you mentioned, especially being able to use um, his, his size, his length as well at worst to be an adequate defender and Cam Spencer. I mean, just <laughs> there's no back down in that guy, a terrific shooter as well. I do wonder if teams would draft him. I think um, personally, I wouldn't. I, I think he's more of someone that I would want as an undrafted free agent and try to get him that way. Maybe um, an X-10 type of guy, get him in the summer league. Um, but with Caravan and Tristan Newton, I think they're both very draftable guys. Yeah, and one last thing I forgot to mention on Tristan Newton. I mean, he's just a free throw generating magnet. 47.6% free throw attempt rate for his five-year career in the NCAA. In the last two seasons at UConn, last year, 57% free throw attempt rate. And currently, this season, Tristan Newton, 56.5% free throw attempt rate. I mean, <laughs> sign me up for that guy. 31.6% assist percentage, and then that free throw generating numbers. So 
Jam, give us your first guy who you think made the right decision by coming back to school. So the first guy that I think made the right decision of coming back to school is Clemson's PJ Hall. He got um, last year is where it really started for him being able to perform well at the G League Elite Camp, parlaying that and earn the invite uh, to the NBA Combine, where he didn't perform as well as he did in the G League Elite Camp, but still a solid overall showing to where he was gaining some second-round interest. Then he's come back this year, and he's just been phenomenal. He's honestly has been one of the best big men in the country. And he's coming back this year with career highs in uh, points at 20.1 points per game, rebounds at 7.6, including 2.1 offensive rebounds per game and 2.6 steals per game. And a little bit surprising, 2.3 blocks per game. He's not that quick twitch type of explosive leaper. That's just not how he, he gets it done as a shot blocker and a rim protector. Um, but he does. It with um, just with an understanding of being able to be in the right place and then just timing. And also he is seven two wingspan. So he does it with uh, timing and length as well. He's also become and has really shown that he's a legitimate shooter, although he's shooting uh, um, 40, excuse me, 34 percent career three point shooter. But the last two years. He's been at 39% two years ago. And then this year on the, um, the most volume that he shot at 4.73s uh, per game, he's shooting at 40%. He's a legitimate stretch big at six foot nine and that seven, two wingspan. He's able to do with a little bit of movement, the pick and pop. And I just really like the frame that he brings. He's slightly undersized at that five spot. Uh, but with his length, as I mentioned, with the seven-two wingspan, just a really stout frame and his physicality, he doesn't back down. I really do like what he um, what he can bring to a team. I do wonder defensively, he's a little bit heavy-footed. He's had some good moments defending in space, uh, particularly in that UAB game against Eric Gaines, being able to get a stop on him in space and Eric Gaines is, is an absolute blur and a freak athlete. So I do think there is something to work with there. I don't think you really want to be switching them too much out onto guards and doing it that way and putting them on the island. But for the most part, I think he can provide some value defensively with understanding rotations and then also being, I don't think he's a true rim protector but someone that is capable of blocking shots and at least providing some type of help there. And over his last four games, he has uh, 12 blocks over his last four games, and it's against legitimate competition. That's against against Alabama, Pittsburgh, South Carolina, and TCU. You know, he's not playing these uh, low-level Division One school. You know, he's playing against legitimate big-time athletes and in the ACC as well. Do you, have you liked what you've seen from P.J. Hall? Do you think he's somebody that's draftable? Oh, yeah. I think I see a little bit of Kelly Olenek in this guy. I don't know that he's like quite as gritty as Kelly is or dirty, depending on how you feel about Kelly Olenek. I know he's one of those players there, but I mean, the production is ridiculous. 20 
0.1 points per game, shooting split 62.8% and 40.5% from three, 76.2% from the free throw line, and then 2.3 blocks per game. What, what's not to like, right? Then again, this is the guy that screams anywhere in the second round. If, if his numbers stay like this, it would be hard to pass him up. Everybody wants a big that can shoot the three like that. Everybody wants a big that can also block shots like that. I don't know that everybody would buy into the production, but it would be tough to ignore. And he's leading an undefeated Clemson team. I can't remember the last time Clemson was any good at basketball. Sorry, Clemson fans, let alone undefeated. And that should be the cherry on top of it of anybody. If you're a non-believer, like look at all those things. He's leading the undefeated Clemson team. If you don't want to buy to that, you're a hater. <laughs> and like he's a legitimate shooter. Um, with range, it's a quick release, high release. He does it with confidence. I just truly believe that when you're looking for a big that can stretch the four, he has to be up there uh, with the, at the top of the list with the best of the best in this draft. And then I'm also glad that you brought up uh, Olenek as well, because one of the things about that I do like about Kelly Olenek is his feel for the game. And that certainly shows with P.J. Hall. He's not someone you're going to be running offense through and, and doing those type of things. But he is someone who can be a connected passer. He's able to find cutters, skip passes, feeds out of the post. He can do those type of things as well. So a pass, dribble, shoot big with just a absolutely solid frame, good length. Uh, there's, there's a lot to like about P.J. Hall. I wouldn't be surprised at the end of the day if he does generate some late first-round buzz. Right now, I have him with the second-round grade. But I don't, th- I don't think it's out of the question for him to be in that first round. Is the first round a little bit too rich for you? You think that's appropriate? No, I think once you get out of like 15 to 20 in the first round, you could sell me on just about anybody right now. And definitely somebody like this that has production. Again, if you can't buy into it, I don't know what to tell you. Also, whatever that coaching staff is doing, like if you're a prospect that wants to learn how to shoot, go to Clemson right now with Brad Brownell. Is it Brownell? I always forget how to pronounce it. Because they produced Hunter Tyson last year, who, again, is a lights-out shooter. And now P.J. Hall. Uh, They had Joseph Girard transfer in, so I don't know if he necessarily counts. But he is also lighting it up from three. And then Alex Hemingway is another dude just, like, lighting it up from three. I don't know what they're putting in their Gatorade down there, but it definitely helps them shoot. They definitely got some good things growing down there in South Carolina, for sure. It's a good time to be a Tigers fan, especially with um, not not quite the season they were hoping on the football side, but I'm sure they'll be back. Sure, a couple national titles, you know, helps them sleep better at night, though. <laughs> hey, I'm a Florida fan. I would love to have one of those. We were going through a little bit of a rough spot. But, oh, come on. You had your time. I'm a Michigan <laughs> fan. Don't talk to me about, <laughs> about that. Hoping this year. Hoping this is the year, but we, we shall see. Yeah. <laughs> So and my guy, next- my my first uh, returner this year, a guy that I'm like, yeah, you made the right decision is Hugo Poplar. Hugo Poplar is listed at six foot five, 195 pounds. He plays for the U. That is Miami. If you don't know, last year Miami made the final four run. Hugo Poplar generated interest. I feel very strongly like he would have been drafted if he did end up coming out. Was super efficient as like kind of the fourth fifth guy for Miami. 
but wasn't scoring a ton. And the defense was kind of like, mm, I'm not so sure on this. Goes back this year to a Miami squad that is still very much in the hunt to get back to that final four. They're seven and two right now. And Wuga Pobler is the leading scorer for this Miami team at 15.9 points per game. Shooting splits are 51% from two point range, 52.3% from three point range on 4.9 three point attempts per game. And then Wuga Poplar is shooting 88% from the free throw line, 5.7 rebounds, 1.7 assists, 0.7 steals, 0.4 blocks. I mean, I think he's maybe the other Jordan Hawkins guy that I would really kind of say like, hey, this is this is a dude that could be a movement shooter because his ball skills are, are OK. But really where he's going to make his money is just being able to drain threes a la Jordan Hawkins, a la like a KCP here. The defense, though, is question a big question mark just because Miami's defense in general is odd. I don't know how to quite put it right. Like it's not bad. But you saw it last year in their run of the Final Four. That's ultimately what kind of stopped them is their defense just seems like it, it kind of puts a limit on their ceiling. No one guy sticks out as like a great man-to-man defender. Uh, but they also play with an undersized center in North Shadow Mir, who's 6'7", 230. Can really get after it on the glass, but isn't much of a shot blocker and isn't really like a switch defender guy. Nigel Pack is the other guard that plays there. Another legit shooter who, like, you can tell him to shoot 10 threes and he's going to drain 40% every single night, but he's six foot and 180 and doesn't play a ton of defense. So for me, the Wuga Poplar conversation is just like, I don't really know where his defense is at. And it's 6'5, 195. If he can't guard small forwards, then that probably really limits his stock. I really would try and, and push, like, this should be somebody in the KCP mold that you would want to buy into. KCP similar size there. I don't know what Wuga Poplar's wingspan is, but I mean, 52.3% from three through nine games shows the shooting stroke is legit. Wuga Poplar is also an 81.3% career free throw shooter. Last year, he was 86.7% from the free throw line. This year, 88% from the free throw line. I have said a million times, if you believe that free throw percentage tells you something about their mechanics and their probability of being a good shooter, then Wuga Poplar is cream of the crop in terms of being able to buy into that. We'll see where the defense is at, but I have a first-round grade on him. I feel very strongly like, I don't If nobody took him in the first round, I would feel like I'm doing something wrong and like I don't know how to evaluate talent or just maybe I was taking crazy pills. I don't know. What do you think about that? <laughs> I do like Wuga, and especially the way he's just shooting the cover off the ball from distance. And I think by this point now, it's pretty known that he's a terrific pull-up shooter as well, being able to get there as well. So I do like that as a compliment to his three-point shooting. And he's an NBA athlete as well. I think with me and what's kind of holding me up from giving him a first-round grade right now, it's similar to what is similar to what you already mentioned. Is him being a defender? Like, what is he looking like as a defender, and what role does he play? Can he be a three and D guy, a la KCP? Can he use athleticism a little bit more to be a more disruptive defender? 
Um, can he take that step up? Is it all right? Can you get to the league now? And it's you know we need to find your role. It's not college anymore. And can you bring that out of him? Um, or is his role being a microwave score off the bench? So that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out right now with him. What exactly is going? What his role is going to be? And I think ultimately that was what's going to dictate where I have him. See, to me, I would just point at Jordan Hawkins right now and be like, we had defensive questions about him, right? We didn't really know what he is, but the shooting absolutely translates. And we talked about it before of like, I don't know, like when you start learning movement stuff and being a movement shooter, like Luka's kind of already there. I don't think he has to learn much else. It's just like terminology and actions. And I am certain that a team like the Denver Nuggets or a team like the Bucks, you know, that's drafting in the back half, if he was there, they would be like, yep, give us that guy. We don't really care about his defense right now because we just need this guy that already knows, hey, I'm going to make a lot of money, launch it away from three, and I'm going to drain a lot of them. Definitely. And I think with a guy like Jordan Hawkins, I think this is probably really me and maybe having a blind spot or maybe just holding him in too high of regard, but just his screen navigation and movement shooting, which is absolutely special. So I just hold like that in such high regard. So when I look at and, and hear that type of name with someone to be a Jordan Hawkins, that's what I'm thinking. Like they have to be absolutely special as a shooter and a screen navigator. And then also getting the chance to see Jordan Hawkins throughout the years, starting uh, with him in high school here in the DMV area to see him actually develop that. So it's not out of the question. So in high school, that wasn't his game being a movement shooter uh, for the most part and being um, able to navigate screens. It's when he really got the Yukon and being able to learn how to navigate screens and do it. So it's certainly something that can be learned. Um, so maybe that's I just have to take a step back and, and realize that as well. Yeah, I think I'm starting to buy more into the Jim Laranaga guys too, Bruce Brown, Lonnie Walker. Like when he gets them, it seems like they end up working out pretty good. So we'll see how uh, the guys that got drafted last year, Jordan Miller, and then uh, Mavs drafts favorite favorite guy Isaiah Wong end up working out. But I do like the foundation that they're teaching there at the U. Who's your other guy that you say did a great job coming back? Another guy that did a, J, uh, a great job coming back is Kevin McCullough Jr. out of Kansas. You know, six foot six wings, six foot nine wingspan. So certainly has the NBA tools that you're looking for. And he's just having um, averaging a career highs and points, rebounds, assists, and three point percentage uh, this year as well. He's at 19 points per game. 7.1 rebounds, five assists per game, um, almost a steal and a half per game. He's at 1.4 uh, steals per game, and he's shooting a career high, as I mentioned, 37% from three on the most violent he's having per game, 3.7 points per game. Um, I've seen a couple interviews when I'm talking about he felt like shooting has been an underrated portion of his game. And it's looking like that so far. Shooting certainly can be very fickle. And he's taking a big jump. Last year, he shot 29% on 2.93 point attempts per game. So it's a big jump up. So I like to try to cut the middle there as well. Maybe he's not quite a 37% shooter. Maybe he will be. Maybe he won't be. But 
I think at the very worst, he's taken legitimate strides here as a three-point shooter where you certainly can see him in that three and D uh, type of mold. And he's obviously been a terrific defender uh, throughout his time in college, especially the last two years. He's finished um, in the semifinals of the Smith Defensive Player of the Year Award as well. And he's another guy similar to P.J. Hall. He's using that NBA combine run as a springboard from last year. And it's gone extraordinarily well so far this year. And I certainly have to mention he has back-to-back triple doubles earlier uh, this season. The first one on a big stage against Kentucky in the Champions Classic. And that's points, rebounds, and assists, those triple doubles. And then he followed that up with the first game against Maui, against Chaminade. And uh, before then, there was only two triple-doubles in Kansas history, and now he's matched that solely this year. We'll see if he can uh, get another one this year. But uh, the cell, as I've kind of alluded to, he has a 3-and-D role, but there's some versatility there. Um, he's a terrific defender, can defend multiple positions, high IQ defender, understands rotations, strong frame, quick hands, and really will get after you defensively as well. I thought he did a terrific job against Dalton Connect out there in uh, Maui is as well out there. And I just really believe that he's essentially solidified himself as a first-round pick, whether or not um, I, I think, think teams believe he's a 37% type of shooter or not, but I think he is at least going to be a, a reliable shooter. Um, what are your thoughts on Kevin McCullough? Do you think the shooting's real? Whatever he did, like if you're a draft prospect and you need to improve as a shooter, like you need to talk to Kevin McCullough. Seriously, look at his free throw numbers going up every single year. And then this year, like you just said, the the jump in his three-point attempts and his percentage. I do buy into the shot because you see him averaging a career high in um, looks from three at 3.7 right now, and then the career high in percentage. I really hope that holds up because it just seems like the improvements there are legitimate. And I, I think it's less too about like the mechanic work and more of like film study, understanding what shots to take and when to take them. Like I, He was going to be on my list, but again, I thought like you were going to pick him, so I didn't put him on there. I think he's probably like the winner of this category of guys who made the right decision coming back because he pinpointed the skill that was really holding him back. Uh, another reason why I would say if you're a draft prospect, go talk to Kevin McCuller. He's been through this process a couple times now, and he's really taken the feedback. Obviously, I don't know him. I don't know the feedback he got, but I do actually because of how he played and going to the combine and then coming back the next season and seeing like what he added to his game and where he's improved. Like that's a great example of that's how you utilize that process in order to get draft position and move up the board and stuff. He's really taken that feedback to heart and improved and while maintaining being one of the best defenders in college basketball up there. I agree with you at this point, like if the draft ended today, he's got to be a first round pick the shots there. The playmaking's there, high-level defense. Like, like I just said before with uh, Wugo Poplar, if you're the box, if you're the Nuggets, you're falling all over yourself to get this guy. Yeah, it seems like a plug-and-play 
type of guy, someone that can contribute to winning in uh, multiple ways. And one thing I do want to add about the the playmaking as well, he's not someone who's going to be a primary ball handler and it's going to be just running, pick and roll the pick and roll, whipping the ball over the floor and making these high-level reads. Um, and I think just, you know, when you hear triple-double, that's kind of what um, can be alluded to. That's the type of playmaker that he is. But although he's not that type of playmaker, what he is is a very connective type of guy. He can make the right reads. He makes sound reads. He'll push the ball and transition, and, and he'll just make smart reads. So I think that is certainly someone that you can have to play winning basketball. And like I, I can't, especially in this draft, we said the Bucks and those type of uh, teams, especially in that late first. He may not last the late first, but on a playoff team, you can see him coming in right away and helping them out tremendously. Yeah, and he could play like the point guard through the power forward position. It just depends on the roster. The one thing that I really like about him that I don't think enough people talk about is he crashes the glass. Like He gets after it. He was a second leading rebounder for Kansas last year. He's the second leading rebounder for Kansas this year. That's just a part of his game that is inherent there. And it is part of, part of how Bill Self utilizes him is like he can be like pretty much the power forward out there. And we don't have to worry about, you know, being too small or, or these other things that normally you think the six foot six five guy he understands positions and he likes getting physical so very very you know versatile dude that every playoff team is going to want to like i said fall all over themselves to draft yeah that's a great point i'm a sucker for rebounding i mentioned it before but that's how you end possessions and that's how you gain possessions you know and he can do that on both ends when you have a wing they can do that take some of that load off your bigs um, I just absolutely love that. So the last guy for me is somebody I've talked about a lot, and I love him so much, is Tristan De Silva out of Colorado. Definitely made the right decision coming back. Another guy that went through the pre-draft process and the you know, Portsmouth and the Combine and all that stuff, got a bunch of feedback and came back. Right now, Tristan De Silva is the second leading scorer for this Colorado team that is currently 7-2. and two. And Tristan De Silva scored 16.2 points per game so far, 5.6 rebounds, 2.9 assists, 1.2 steals per game, and 0.6 blocks per game. Shooting splits for Mr. Tristan De Silva are 66.7% from two-point range, 41% from three-point range on 4.3 attempts per game, and then 85.7% from the free throw line. Probably another guy that if you're a draft prospect, wants to improve his shooting, go talk to Tristan DeSilva to see what in the world he did. And it's not even that he was a bad shooter before. I mean, career for Tristan DeSilva in his four years at Colorado is 38.3% from three. And really, it was only his freshman year where he wasn't a good shooter from three. 37.3% as a sophomore, 39.4% last year, and then 41% so far this year. Also has shot over 75% from the free throw line both of those years. But man, talk about improving from that, improving from a position of strength either. Over 40% from three, 85.7% from the free throw line. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what he did 
to improve his shot, but it's just been money. It seems like he's barely ever missed right now. True shooting percentage for Tristan Silva, 68.5%. I mean, fantastic. He's also up his free throw attempt rate to 38.9%. And he's averaging a career high in three-point attempt rate at 43.3%. And then his usage is 23.1%. It dipped a little from last year. But to me, it just screams, you want to believe in this guy. When you increase volume, when you have career highs and like, you know, how many attempts you take off and you get to the line and stuff, and then your percentages go up. Yeah, you're a good worker and you're definitely got NBA skill set. Six foot eight, 200 around is where Tristan Silva is listed at right now. He's played anywhere from the shooting guard to the center position at Colorado. It's another thing I don't think people have talked enough about. Last year, Tristan De Silva had to play center for Colorado because they didn't have really anybody that wanted to crash the glass like like he could. And they didn't have anybody taller than Tristan De Silva last year. This year, they at least have Eddie Lampkin, who's, you know, this gigantic mountain of a man. I think they have another guy that's like 6'10". Yeah, Asain Diop. Um, there's a few positions there. So at least he's gone away from center position. But it just speaks to the level of versatility and the physicality that Tristan De Silva has, where he started off as kind of the shooting guard as a freshman. And then as the years went on, they're like, hey, dude, we need you to be a big man. But his shooting has still been there. He's been given more offensive responsibility and just seeing this Colorado team turn around. I saw him in person last year when he did have to play center uh, against uh, the big guys here in Arizona with uh, Umar Balo. And why am I all of a sudden blanking on my own guy's names here? Uh, Azulas, Cabelas, you know, both guys who are 6'11", like really big dudes. And Tristan Silva still showed out there and showed that, yeah, I'm physical and can do all this. I had a first round grade on him last year. That hasn't changed for me this year. What do you think about Tristan Silva? I've liked what I've Thing from over the years and, and what I've seen so far this year, and you hit a lot of all the key attractive points for him on the next level. And I think the way I would just sum it up is just the size, the shooting, the versatility. Those are the major selling points for him. And then also, you can put him in a three and D role. And I think that's something that teams will certainly like, not necessarily a high-level defender, um, but someone that can play in that role, can knock down threes, be able to defend multiple positions, can switch multiple positions as well, too. I mean, I think he's really solidified himself as a first-rounder. And I was thinking about this um, earlier. He was someone that drew interest from other schools to transfer for his last year. And if I'm not mistaken, there's been a few reports that Duke was one of those teams as well. So I do wonder what it would look like if he was at a different school, if he would have been able to, to make this jump or, you know, just to being able for him to be the man um, there at Colorado. What is the type of role that has had on his, um, what type of impact that has had on his stock? But I really do like him as well. I think he's a bona fide first rounder. Another one that looks to be um, a plug and play type of piece for a team, especially if you can get down to the playoff team. It just seems like that's going to be gold for someone. 
Yeah, another dude that falls in that, like Royce O'Neal, Dorian Finney-Smith type of dude where it's like he's just going to jack threes and play tough defense. I do think the passing and the rebounding is probably a little bit better than both of those guys. Uh, 2.9 assists per game right now is what Tristan Silva is averaging. And I think Royce O'Neal's probably the thing or the, the comp I would sell more people on just because his passing did get better. Royce O'Neal, as he's gotten older and taken on different kind of roles and continued to be a good three-point shooter. I mean, I don't know if it's Marcus Morris, but I, it would also be a name that I would throw out there with Tristan De Silva because I think small forward, power forward is probably where he's at. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to match the attitude of Marcus Morris. So, you know, Tristan ain't, ain't that kind of guy. But in terms of the athleticism, in terms of the skill set, yeah, you know, Royce O'Neal, Marcus Morris, somewhere in there. How high do you think he can rise? And then it's, I know we're a few months away from getting there, but at March Madness, I just, once we get to that tournament time, obviously you want to take these performers with a grain of salt, but he just seems like someone of Colorado can win a couple games or so. Like his stock will certainly go up with everything that he does. And obviously he's playing alongside of Cody Williams as well. So is that someone do you think is, is the lottery potentially? too rich for you? I think so. Only because you just mentioned he's playing with Cody Williams. For whatever reason, when I think guys play with the higher profile dude, it knocks them down right in, in scout size and kind of puts a cap on like, well, they're playing with this high recruit. So I don't know how much we can like really say he's doing a lot. So, I mean, that's just keep it real. I think 20s, maybe 15 might be the highest. I like legitimately could see him rise. But that's only because, again, like I said, 15 to 20. I think there are a lot of people that are like me where it's like you could talk me into anybody. And that may be some of the approach that um, a lot of teams are taking, especially once you say hey, when you get out that lottery, maybe really even in the lottery, it's really going to be about fit. The NBA really is all about fit and opportunity in the first place. But I think this could be a draft where teams are more willing to take a guy higher because they feel like they fit better um, with that team as opposed to maybe some upside. Yeah, and the four guys that we laid out here, we say made a good decision coming back. I think they all have like the easiest cases to make starting at 15 to 20 of like, look at PJ Hall, look at Abuka Poplar, look at Kevin McCullough, look at Tristan De Silva. Everything we laid out screams, yeah, they're just going to work in an NBA rotation. Why wait until the second round? Just take them now. You know they're going to be good because they made a great decision coming back to school. So, Jam, thank you again for being here. Always a pleasure every week we get to do this. Let everybody know where they can find you and your work one last time before we get out of here. Well, Steve, I appreciate you having me. The pleasure is all mine. Always enjoyed. Looking forward to doing these every week. You can find my work on Draft Digest. And you also follow me on Twitter at Jam on the Boards. So, yeah, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. If you want us to cover something in the future, drop it in the comments, leave us a review, rate all that stuff on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll catch you next time. We'll go on it.